This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This is the 10th anniversary of the podcast, 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Tucker Nichols about his art and the quality of the art he loves. What I care about is a feeling that there was something that was driving them that they couldn't have not done this if they wanted to. It had to happen. Here's Debbie Millman. Fun is not a word we use very often to describe an artist's work. But fun is way underrated, and it's a quality Tucker Nichols has in spades. Whether it's a painting, an illustration, or even some wallpaper he's designed, there's always a sense of spirited play on display. His work has been featured at the Drawing Center in New York and the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art and many other museums in between and abroad. His illustrations have appeared in McSweeney's and the New York Times, and he's co-authored several books, including his latest children's book with Dave Eggers, This Bridge Will Not Be Gray. Tucker Nichols lives in Northern California, and he joins me now at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. Tucker, welcome to Design Matters. Oh, thanks for having me. I understand you have an original copy of I Am a Bunny by Richard Scarry. Is this your favorite book? It is. I don't know how you know that, but yes, it is. Um, <laughs> I have my I am, a bunny was, I am a Bunny was given to me by my brother after he wrongly thought that his daughter was past that time. And so he gave it to me when my daughter was born. And I read it to her every night for many, many years. And she's five now, way past the the age, I think, that it was intended for. And occasionally we still drop back into it. Yeah, it must be my favorite children's book of all time. Interesting that you should share that anecdote about your daughter. I'm going to probably botch this because I don't have it written down as a question, but in my research, I read, I saw somewhere that one of the things you loved most about being a parent was the idea that you were allowed to do things you really, really enjoy doing as a kid, but didn't really have quite the same freedom to do now. Yeah, I think that idea of freedom is a its a big theme in my life and it comes in really unexpected places. So what you hear before you have a kid and what you see before you have a kid is just the opposite. You see all the constraints and the difficulty and the hassles and there are plenty of all of those things. But there's also a way when you're hanging out with a four-year-old or a five-year-old that you're granted tremendous freedom because your only job is to just be there and share time and have fun. And so you're allowed to do things that you just wouldn't do if there wasn't a five-year-old around. It's a really – and it's, I can't always get into that space and she can't always get into that space. But when we can both get there together, it's like preparation for going to the studio when it's working. I have a five-year-old niece and one of the remarkable things that I've recognized in her is I think when you have good parenting, you become a remarkable – truth sayer. <laughs> She's totally unafraid to say exactly what she thinks. I really admire that. So you were born in Boston, the son of an antiques dealer slash flower arranging mom and a dad who worked in book manufacturing. And you said you grew up with beautiful, weird things. So how beautiful, how weird, and in what way? Well, my mom is a hoarder of beautiful things, and it would be a problem 
if they weren't so nice. And and it's still a problem when you try to go into the garage or the her barn or a room that's that was recently vacated by one of her children, like when we were in college and stuff. They just fill up so completely that they become unusable. And in that way, it's not ideal. But when you actually pull any of the things out, they have a um, – you can see that she has seen some story in them and she has seen some – even if you don't know what that story is, you immediately – you know, I was just at her house yesterday outside Philadelphia and she has a plate that I just noticed for the first time on a stand and it says – Heck Sunday School, 1842 or something. And the name of the school seems to have been Heck or maybe the name of the town was Heck. You know, that's the kind of thing that you would think someone would make as a joke. It wasn't a joke. It's just she found the joke. She found the piece and she was able to see that. And, you know, when you grow up, you don't really know what's different about how you grow up until you get old enough to learn about how other people grow up. But being surrounded by that kind of stuff all the time, it just gets in who you are. I understand that your father would bring home stacks of blank cloth-bound books and one of your brothers, John, used to fill them up with rows and rows of portraits including pirates and firemen and space guys and peanuts with mustaches and so forth. Um, is this what first ignited your passion for art? John's a big part of it. He's a endlessly creative person and we've been collaborating together since I could look at whatever it was he was doing. And, yeah, that was a big format for us. You know, my dad would bring home these dummy books and the plant that he worked at was responsible largely for printing books both for the Gideons. So it was a lot of Bibles and then Merck manuals, which, you know, those two groups don't always agree on everything. <laughs> but but it was um, largely uh, very thin paper books. And um, it was always a rush to go to the factory and watch the paper whirring around and ink getting all over the place and to just pick up sort of Bible-ness, just stretches of paper that hadn't been cut or folded yet. And But to bring them home blank was really a treat. That paper is a little bit tricky to draw because it's so thin. But then that's also an opportunity to play around. You don't, As a kid, you don't usually get a book of paper that's so thin like that. So you can do things like make a drawing and then put a page on top of it and then put something else on top of that and then something else on top of that. You can do all this layering and things. So it's, it's very inventive when you get something from the outside world that wasn't intended for kids and just see what they do with it. You've said that with siblings when you're a kid, it's less like collaboration and more like one person exerting experimental influence over the other. I thought that was one of the best definitions of siblinghood I've ever read. <laughs> it's, a, it's especially true when uh, being the youngest, I was the subject and the audience. And yeah, having creative brothers, you know, my oldest brother was much more of a let's see what kind of hockey pucks he can stop and it was more of a sort of physical experimentation. And then my middle brother was much more of a let's see what kind of clothing we could put on him and send him out into that cocktail party with a tray of <laughs> crackers and just let's see what will happen. So I was – I was, and, you know, as a kid, you are also – you feel like you're in on it because you're getting to do something with your brothers. But you don't really realize that you're actually the sort of butt of the whole thing at the same time. You got your undergraduate degree from Brown University in Chinese art history, Tucker. How on earth did you become interested in Chinese art history? The first semester at Brown, I took a team-taught art history class, and um, each of the professors taught about two weeks on their specialty. And the two weeks that were taught on Chinese painting, it just flipped a switch for me, and I just saw things that I had never seen before and 
I've always been really moved by art, but here was something that was so distant in time and space, so far away from me, and now being projected onto the walls of a lecture hall, and yet still I was feeling something in my sternum when I saw it. I just had to know what that was all about, and I've sort of been trying to figure out that ever since. I read that in a survey class, you were struck by the ability of a brushstroke from an ancient Chinese painting to reach across the years and convey an intense feeling. And I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit how a brushstroke can accomplish that. How could one create a brushstroke to relay that type of feeling? I don't really know exactly how. I don't know if there's anyone who could really answer that, but I think that there has to be something in it that is true enough. It has to be believable for the person who made it and for the people who saved it and showed it and collected it and then photographed it and put it in a book who then photographed it again and put it on a slide and projected it to a group of undergrads to see it in the first place. It has to be durable, ultimately. It's got to have enough energy in it so that it can actually withstand all of those different pieces going from one thing to the next to get transferred to eventually hit people like me. And, you know, there are a lot of other people in that class too and probably most of them didn't feel what I felt. They got moved by something else. But I think in part because this particular style of ink painting is so simple, it's unexpected that you could be moved by it. And especially with no knowledge of what the words were saying or really what the circumstances it was made under to still feel something it's an incredible human achievement that you could have an artist and an audience separated by so much and still have it transfer. So that brushstroke almost becomes like a thread. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And in Chinese painting, what's so great is they're so aware of these threads. There's so much layering that goes on throughout the history of people writing on each other's paintings and faking various inscriptions and faking the paintings themselves. And it's really a big mess. And the mess is what's so amazing about it because in that mess, it's a little bit like in jazz or hip-hop or something like that, where you have all through, if the listener knows what they're listening to, they hear all the references. So a Chinese painter could draw a rock in a certain way and everyone knows what he's doing. Everyone knows exactly what he's writing about. And it might even be something that's against the government just by how he wrote, made that rock because it references a different painter who was very outspoken. And you just know, you know so much stuff. So you can either know that stuff or you can not know that stuff. But you, you can, can still listen, appreciate yeah, it, you right? you can listen to jazz and say, I like how this sounds. Or you could get into it and realize, oh, do you see who he's talking to right there? He's talking back to these people in order to talk future to the people who are going to be hearing and taking this to the next place. It's incredible. You then moved to Taiwan. Why? Well, I was a very studious student. I was really into it. And it was clear that it was time for me to take a break from that kind of study and really just get some real-world exposure to the things that I had been studying. And my initial idea was to move to China, to mainland China, and travel around. But I'd been advised by a few friends that if I moved to Taiwan, I'd be able to – it would be easier for me to find an apartment and get a job. And it was just an easier place to live at the time, for a Westerner anyhow. Did, and, what kind and, of job did you get? Oh, I was teaching and tutoring. And at the time, the economy was in such a state that – it. I didn't have to work very much in order to pay my rent and eat simply and that gave me a lot of time to just take buses around and um, just meet people and talk to them. When you came back to the United States, you got a job at the Asia Society in Manhattan. How did you get the job and what did you do there? 
I was initially working as an art handler with a couple different companies that are right around here in Chelsea. And through that work, I was delivering and packing and installing artwork all over the place. And it was a great introduction to the art world in New York because you got to know all the different institutions and see a lot of collections and handle a lot of masterpieces. Before long, it became clear that there was an opportunity somehow for me to be working exclusively with Asian art and the kinds of things that I had been studying for so long. And I just wanted that so bad. I can't remember exactly how I was introduced to, I think, the registrar is probably who I started with. And, yeah, I don't really remember the actual hiring process, but it just worked out. I think probably I'd already known her a little bit through doing some work there, packing some things and moving them around. I didn't really know what I was getting into, and that's sort of a common theme for me. But at this particular museum, it was a museum at the time it was led by a very bright and ambitious director named Vishaka Desai. And she had ambitions for the museum as a space that the staff couldn't possibly live up to, and yet we did. And as a young person, you can't ask for a better boss than someone like that, even when it's killing you. It's just amazing to be driving that hard to achieve things that are seemingly just out of your reach every single time. But they believe you can do it. Oh, yeah. And they give you, you know, you have to learn on the fly. So I was doing exhibition layout design and I was figuring out how to talk to conservators and how to manage big installation crews for these massive, fragile stone freezes. And I didn't know what I was doing at all, but you got to figure That's it incredible. out. incredible. Yeah, it, it was an amazing, <laughs> amazing job. You then decided to get a master's at Yale. And once again, you studied the history of Chinese painting. But I read that things took an unexpected turn when you got there. And you stated that pretty much as soon as I got there, I knew I had taken a wrong step. Why is that? What happened? What I love so much about Chinese painting is the tangle of it. And I love all the references and the sort of inherent unknowability of it in a lot of ways. As it turned out, the person I was studying with there, who was quite a well-respected and amazing scholar in his own right, his main push was to try to untangle. He was a connoisseur and he was teaching us connoisseurship. And so much of the work that we were doing and expected to do as students was to be tested on our ability to untangle. And so we would you know, he taught by Socratic method and you'd sit down in his seminar and he'd put up on the screen a detail of some bamboo brushwork and he'd say, okay, Mr. Nichols, what is this? And when was it made? And no one would know actually what it was and when it was made, but you had to make a case. You had to say, I think this is, it's got to be Southern Sung. I'm thinking it's probably someone out of this school. Uh, wow, I can see a little bit of an inscription there. I think that's probably the characters for this and this. And it was really about getting to some kind of truth and memorizing what are those facts and is that in keeping with what that school did or was this person starting to deviate from that? And I just had so much time living outside of school and living with real painters and traveling all over Western Asia and Taiwan, living with painters there and working with live objects and it just didn't have the energy anymore. It felt like it was exactly, there was nothing down that path for me that felt like it was lifting me up. How did you manage to continue and ultimately get a degree in this type of headspace? Well, I was lucky because I had done so much work as an undergrad that I could get the master's after just one year. I went there initially with the idea of getting a PhD, but I knew right away that that wasn't going to happen. But I was able to get the master's in one year. Unfortunately, or just as it happens, about halfway through that process, 
a different kind of obstacle came my way, which is that I started to get very sick and it took a while to figure out what it was. But I was eventually diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And at the time, it was extremely debilitating and I was in and out of the hospital for many months and trying to get work done when I could. But it was just kind of a big mess. Must have been really, really hard to get through that. Yeah, it was ugly. It was confusing. It was ugly. It was um, I didn't have anyone around me who I really knew at the time and people were coming to visit. But it was very uh, isolating. I think at the time I was 28 and I think when you're in your 20s, well, really any time until some vision of when it seems like it's okay to start having your body fail you. But particularly (laughs) at that time, I didn't know people around me. I had no peers who had been through any type of physical breakdown. And so I didn't really know what was happening. I was very confused and the people around me were confused and I was just getting a ton of conflicting and oftentimes bad advice about how to get through it. And it was a really shitty time and a really exhausting time and I didn't really know where I was anymore and what was what was next. I had no idea what was coming. How did you recover? Well, I just kept moving my feet. I just kept trying to figure out what could work and – Before too long, I'd moved out to San Francisco, and at that point, I had a diagnosis, and so that was something to work from, and then I was sort of getting away from a lot of people I knew, but toward a space that I'd already lived in for a while, and it felt like, okay, there's a lot of art stuff here, but it's not New York City. I knew I needed to get away from the energy of New York. I knew I needed to get away from... I needed to get toward a place of clarity and just start with something that I knew, okay, I have this disease. I don't know how I'm going to get better from it. But I'm going to go out there. There are doctors who know about it out there. And I'll just start figuring it out. And I think the biggest thing was really I had to go through a few doctors. I had to really work to eventually find a GI who I could relate to, who I trusted, who seemed like he really knew what he was talking about. And then just start to put my trust in his hands and just say, all right, what are we going to do? You had a really big realization at that time. You decided you did not want to waste your precious time and energy in a corporate job. What did you do next? I had known for a long time that I was going to be in art in some way, that it was just too magical to leave behind. I didn't want to work in retail or finance or law or anything like that. You had been working at some internet startups at that point. Yeah, they were all art-related. I had still sort of found a way to make it work for me and be interesting enough, and it felt like, well, this has never happened before. Let's see what happens here. But when I really got sick and kind of realized, wow, I can't really keep a job, Crohn's disease is not life-threatening. But when things are bad, you don't really know in a given week how much good time you have. You don't know how much free time you have, how much time that you could actually work towards something that is significant. And the idea of giving that to someone else just suddenly seemed like, I'm not doing that. So as a result, I finally admitted kind of out loud for the first time that what I really had been wanting to do all along was not just study art, but be making and showing art. And I had been doing the making part all along, but it just never quite felt like something that I had permission to push forward on. And at that point, it just became clear, especially when I mentioned it to my then-girlfriend, now-wife, this is really what I want to be doing and this is what I really think I can be doing. Then there was no choice but to go for it. What did you do first? How did you get started? How do you just decide, I think this is what I'm going to do today? The only thing that was really different was the showing part. Drawing is something that I'll do obsessively all the time. So it wasn't really hard like – 
where do I get paper? Like, that, that wasn't a problem. <laughs> Where's the nearest art supply store? Yeah, that, that was yeah. never an issue. But the idea of sort of, okay, how do I actually present myself as an artist and what does it mean to start showing things and how is that different from what I have been doing? I just started really small and I started with this idea that this was an experiment and that probably it would run its course and eventually I would be sort of ushered back to the more sort of conventional job-oriented life and by that time maybe my health would be in a different state and – yeah, I mean, that was uh, almost 15 years ago, and I just keep going forward for the next project and the next project. But I didn't have too much of a plan beyond let's just try to do a project. Let's try to find a place that will show some of this stuff. Let's try to sell some of these things. And in the beginning, I separated. I had no expectations about funding my life with it. And it was just sort of this open space where I was dealing with being sick, and that was my primary deal to say when I'm not sick – I'm going to be making and then I'm going to be figuring out what I can do with the stuff I'm making. You first began showing in Charles Linder's Lincart Gallery in San Francisco. And I understand that Charles became an extremely influential force at that stage of your journey. What did he help you do? Charles is one of many people who sort of stepping stones of people you can't really imagine things playing out without their involvement and the best people for me in my life that have really helped me have been the ones who don't really believe in the rules as they are because I don't tend to follow traditional pathways very much. He's a maverick in his own ways, an artist, and he's a kind of flaneur and he's a great observer and he has run different gallery spaces over the years. And I think he just saw something in what I was making and just said, yeah, let's do something. It didn't occur to him to ask me about or look into my background. He just didn't care about any of that stuff. And that's what I needed. If I didn't have that, I would have to fake it somehow. And you don't have to fake it with Charles. You then moved into an empty studio space near Linder's. And I think it ended up being a space that had been recently vacated by a failed startup. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And it looked like they'd left in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> So you took advantage of this opportunity and you began drawing directly on the walls and creating hypothetical brainstorming sessions and flowcharts as though you were the last man standing at the company. What was that kind of freedom like for you at that point? Yeah, I think this is another example of that kind of permission I was talking about before. I was in the space to make bigger work. That was the whole idea. But when I got in there and I started seeing all these sort of clues of what appeared to be a hastily vacated space by what I assumed to be a failed internet startup, I couldn't concentrate on anything other than what had happened. It's almost like when you walk into the room after there's been a big argument and you can kind of feel it in the air. I could feel, having been in an internet startup myself, just all of the discussions that must have happened and all of the sort of dashed hopes and still living dreams that maybe left with some of those people and it just seemed like the perfect chance to actually try to exhume and, and then eventually just discard all of that thinking and all of the jargon and terminology that I had been sort of suffering through for so long at the previous startup. Some remnants of failure. Yeah, and to let those things mix together in a nonlinear way. If you're looking for clues, it never quite matches up. You have to do the work to put together the story. And there was uh, big T1 cables that were along the floor and there was a big server closet with all sorts of multicolored wires sticking out of it. And there was a NCAA basketball tournament bracket that was taped to the wall still and a couple of people's business cards. And 
you just start to build that story. And so rather than write an essay about what happened here and sort of create something, I just added to what I already saw as if from a sort of fictitious figure who was still holding on to that dream. And the work actually inspired an actual project and a commission, including one from Facebook. Is that right? It started a whole body of work that I did as commissions and continue to do where I go into established companies and kind of fake work at the companies and pretend like I work there. And everyone who's there knows that I'm there as an artist, but I am sitting in on meetings and taking notes and interviewing people in the break room and wandering around the halls. And and then eventually I make a kind of – most of the time I make a big mural that looks kind of like a brainstorming session gone haywire a soup of all these different jargons and some of them are spot on to what the company does. Some of them have more to do with what's for lunch next door that people were ordering or something that happened in the news at the time. But it's really a portrait of my experience as a fly on the wall just presented back to everyone to say, this is what you guys look like to me. And it's not made as an attempt to put the place down, but it's also not made as a place to necessarily celebrate. Like, it's not in line with what the marketing department wants. So it's, it's just it's a, your, your view of what you've seen. Yeah, it is a chance to make light of things. Um, a lot of times the industry as a whole is something that there's a lot of room for. And, you know, the truth is that people spend so much time at work now, and they don't really have time to reflect on what they're really doing there. There's not really space to actually think about the biggest picture, what is this all about? If we're a tech company, what are we really adding to? How is this changing communication or how is this changing what what might this turn into later? Not just from a business point of view, but from an experience of someone who doesn't work here. That has become my job is to be asking those questions and thinking about that stuff and sort of hold that space that says, okay, I'm going to come in and I'm going to think about all the things that you guys don't have time to think about. Someone needs to be doing that here. I'm going to do that for you. Do they ever get mad at you? Uh, yeah, they do. They do. I think in the beginning there's a lot of confusion usually because people think, what's this guy doing here? Has he signed an NDA? And, <laughs> you know, what's, why is he sitting in on this meeting? And, and then eventually when I start working on the project, usually it starts to shift a little bit and there will be people who start getting into it and they start to say – oh, he must have sat in on that meeting about that whole event that we're doing because I can see he's writing about this or, oh, I bet he talked to Nancy because Nancy always says that. And people start to really start following it. And usually I do my listening during the day and then at the end of the day as people are leaving, I start to draw. So people in the morning come back in and they sort of see what's been added and try to figure out where it came from. So some people start to get really into it and a lot of great conversations come out of that. Other people start to see it and they're like, Wow, this really is ridiculous. Oh. Yeah, or, no, I haven't had too much of can you take it out, but I have had a feeling of like I'm actually working here and this guy's getting paid to come in and just like scrawl stuff all over the walls. Lucky like, you, man. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so it, it's not it's not all um, it's not all positive, but it's it's all done in a, a light of curiosity and respect, if not a certain amount of ribbing about just how serious we take all this stuff. Let's talk a little bit about the evolution of your style. How would you describe its changing and evolving since you made the decision to give up your corporate life? 
I really don't know if I'm the right person to ask about how it's evolved. My handwriting I stole from my middle brother when I was young, and he still resents me for it. <laughs> you he, have very similar handwriting. Claims, yeah, he claims it's his. I claim it's mine. Well, you just actually admitted to stealing it, Right, that's right. Shit. (laughs) Um, No, so there are places where it comes from. There's no doubt about that. I think the thing that's probably changed over time the most is I don't care as much about what it's all for. I think I care less and less all the time particularly in my studio when I'm painting or drawing, I think as time goes on, I am granting myself more and more of this permission to just let the thing become whatever it's becoming. And then to be extremely rigid in my judging of that thing the next day. And if I don't like it, to kill it. And if I like it, to keep it, defend it, protect it, whatever it needs. But at the time of making it, I'm not really thinking. I'm trying to think as little as possible or I'm trying to compress the amount of time that I spend when I'm thinking about something and when I'm making it into as tight a space as I possibly can. And sometimes that works out really well and sometimes it doesn't, but it can't afford attachment. That process gets poisoned by liking something as I'm making it. So that just means that there's a different – there's a whole different – wave that comes after that's evaluating and that process needs to be ruthless. If you like something that you're making while you're making it, does that create a sense of immediate suspicion for you as to whether or not it's good? No, I still fall for the feeling, but I learn later every time that it's dangerous. Didn't Picasso say that if you like something, the thing he liked most in a painting, he'd always force himself to take out? I haven't heard that, but it doesn't surprise me. Think about when you first learn to ride a bike or something, if you started thinking, oh, my God, I'm doing it. Uh, This is great. I'm actually riding a bike. It's like that's exactly the part where you run into a pole. You know, like that's that's dangerous. Whereas if you just stay like, okay, here I am. I think it's going okay. I just got to keep pedaling and turn the handles. And I have to stay in the space of the maker and not get into too much evaluating. I work almost exclusively with discarded hardware paint, which is great for a bunch of reasons, but it's not forgiving really at all. It's it's kind of like typing with mittens. You just don't have a lot of dexterity with what you can really do with it. It just has its own properties. So getting to know the, those properties and letting them kind of have their way is key. And it works well with this idea that I can destroy things and just paint over them. And there is tremendous satisfaction in painting over a painting that I've been attached to for a long time but that's been bugging me and I haven't admitted that it's been bugging me because I've been rooting for it. And once I finally paint over it, it's just uh, – it's like burying a suspect in concrete in your backyard or something. It's just <laughs> done. It's totally out of the picture. It's a really bad analogy but I kind of like it. <laughs> why discarded hardware paint? Why, why make your life so difficult? Well, it's not difficult at all. It's actually the easiest way for me to get paint is to walk into a hardware store and just look at what they have on the sort of discard shelf. They Almost every paint store has paints that they mix that didn't work out. And what ends up happening is then I, I'll usually bring one or two of them back to my studio and just introduce them into the crowd and see what combinations want to come up. And I don't think I'd be able to paint in the color combinations that I use if I didn't have the sense of chance of what ended up coming into my studio in the first place. 
Griff Williams Gallery 16 has been showing your work since 2009, and you've stated that you found Griff to be the perfect collaborator. He's nothing if not open to artists showing things they don't quite understand yet. (laughs) Do you think he understands what you might not? I don't know exactly what he understands. I know that he is a little bit like, you know, if Charles Linder was the person who just first gave me a shot, Griff's the person who's who's encouraged me to keep experimenting and to just keep on whatever the path that makes sense to me is. And, you know, he doesn't suffer fools. He's a Montana man. He's Evil Knievel's first cousin. He's an amazing guy and he's he doesn't really care about the art world so much, but he cares deeply about the people who are in it, who he knows and likes. And it's just an environment that is very open to risk-taking and he can tell me when something's not working and I can tell him, well, then just don't show it. I like it. It's easy to fight with Griff. How important do you think it is to understand the intention of your work? I don't think it's important at all. I think this is what really separates for me um, art from design in a lot of ways. And I, I mix the two quite a bit in my life. But I think with art, what I respond to is not so much that I know what an artist was thinking or what their intention was. What I care about is a feeling that they had an intention. There was something that was driving them that they couldn't have not done this if they wanted to. It had to happen. The urgency has to be there. And you can try to fake that, and I'm sure many artists do, and I probably fall for it all the time. But it doesn't really matter what that first input of content is. What matters is the the ability to translate whatever that input was into a form that then still holds that energy for other people to take out of it. So, for example... I'm working a lot. I just did a commission for um, a hospital in, in San Francisco, and it was a series of paintings that were all of flowers and vases. And I've been thinking about this idea a lot about how when you're sick, when I was sick, when someone dies, when my dad died, et cetera, nobody really knows what to say. Nobody knows. That there's something clearly that's supposed to be said between love people, people who love each other, and everybody flubs it. It's just kind of bad feelings all around unless someone is very forgiving. So flowers have become this kind of place where people say, I don't really know what to say. I'm going to give you these flowers and hope that you know that I have something in my heart I want to share with you. I don't know how open you are to my mentioning your dad right now or to me asking you about like how's the surgery, you know, all that stuff. So it becomes this kind of stand-in and as a stand-in, it does great because it can – you can put in one type of content into these flowers. When you give them to me, I can take – what I perceive to be the thing that you put in. It's very unspecific. It doesn't actually say anything very clear, but there's some sort of intention. I think art is really good at this. It's really, really bad at saying anything specific. And when it tries to say something specific, it usually feels kind of lifeless to me. Some political art I think is able to do it because it just hits people over the head with whatever it's it's doing. But largely there's this feeling I think around intent that – We don't really need to know, like with the Chinese painting that we talked about before, I don't really need to know what that guy was thinking. I just need to know that he was feeling it, you know, and that he was feeling it and his ability to feel it was able to come through his brush to the point where that thing was still, it was like still wet to me. 
So urgency is more important than intention. I think so. And I think that's when it gets really interesting when you mix into different worlds like the world of branding or the world of advertising or illustration. Those worlds don't really have the freedom that the art world generally has to play around with that. I get lucky sometimes because someone will let me in when I don't really belong and say, hey, yeah, do it your way. Do it your way. You, you know, we don't really know what you're doing. We don't understand why you painted that thing or why you made that drawing to go with Vice President Biden's kind of important piece on the op-ed page there. But that kind of permission, I think, is really exciting. And I think that's happening more and more. I think artists are being invited in to places where we've never quite been invited before because we think in a certain way that is getting valued in a way that it hasn't been before. You and Griff sort of collaborated on a book together, a book called Postcards from Vermont. How would you describe this book to somebody that wasn't able to see it? You know, in the very beginning, and I didn't mention this before, but a mode that I was fond of before I even sort of declared myself an artist has always been the U.S. postal system. I've been using it to send postcards and and letters and drawings to people I know and people I don't know for many, many, many years and probably started with Santa Claus. And Griff has been one of the people who I've sent things to for a long time. And I spent a summer at my wife's late grandmother's house in southern Vermont. And we were there sort of preparing the place for our wedding. And I just started raiding the her late grandmother's desk for various stationary bits, all kinds of weird pieces of stationary cocktail napkins, that kind of thing. And just drawing on them and just sticking them in the mail to Griff, not really knowing what we didn't really have a book in mind. It was just a feeling of – I started sending a couple of them and then I started thinking, I'm just going to bombard him. I'm just going to send him like as many things as I possibly can from this house. He must and, have thought he'd won lotto. <laughs> he, or he was just like, really? Really? Oh, this no, one too? No. He, no, no. I know that he likes them but it's, there were periods where I was trying to send like – I think at one point I sent like 50 one day. I'm just like I just wanted to flood him. It was like I wanted I wanted it to feel like he couldn't he was just going to have to say, "Okay, stop. What are you doing? Just enough." Um that never happened, but there was a feeling like I I had sort of created a a a, a person in my mind, I think, who was trapped in this beautiful farmhouse in southern Vermont and needed to get a message out, but um, could only communicate with these very abstract ways of like rip these ones into little squares and put them in an envelope and then put this kind of stamp on as if it was all like some sort of coded message that the other person doesn't have a decoder ring for. Sounds like one of the Chinese paintings you were talking yeah, about. <laughs> a little bit. There was not a lot of clear input, that's for sure. You start the book with a, a gorgeous postcard with the line, this must be the place. And I was curious as to whether or not it was a Talking Heads reference to the tune Naive Melody or a reference to being in Vermont. I think it was both. I'm a huge David Byrne fan and Talking Heads are always playing either literally or sort of just in my imagination. Probably at the time it was both. I think that was the first one I sent him and it was sort of, oh, we're here. We're getting married here. I guess what's the first thing I need to tell you? OK, I'm here. Griff, I'm here. Here's, And this must be the place. Let's see what happens. Let's talk about another important collaborative effort, your book Crabtree, which you created with your brother John Nichols. 
from what I understand, John wrote most of the story and drew all of the people, and you drew all the objects. But there are a lot of objects, which has been noted by other people that have written reviews about the book, lest our listeners feel that you didn't do 50% worth of the book. Um, But the book is about a very disorganized collector named Alfred Crabtree, who goes on an epic housewide quest to find his missing false teeth. Why missing false teeth? Well, for one thing, we'd never seen a book that was about dentures for children. <laughs> and we thought, well, there's, there's an opportunity. There's a segment this we have not targeted. To, to, this is going to just kill it in the market. We found, <laughs> we, we found a loophole. Um, yeah, I think part of it really was like, can we start with a sort of portly guy with a comb over who's looking for his dentures. Uh, John and I typically, like Trump. we typically like to, in all of the collaborations we do, whether it's like a game in the park that we're inventing on the spot or whatever, we like to dig ourselves a hole and then see if we can dig out of it. So, you know, a lot of games we make up are just with things like pine cones we can find in a park and they're not going to roll the way we want them to roll. And so we have to incorporate that somehow. In this case, we had both been reading to our children stories um, and surprisingly you don't completely have a say in what kind of stories you read to your kid over and over again because if something comes into your house that is appealing, you can't really make it disappear just – I mean sometimes you can say it had to go back to the library or we lost that one but largely you can get caught in these rather ugly eddies of reading books that you – can't bear to look at or read one more time <laughs> over and over and over again. So the big impetus for that book was really to relieve all of those parents who were stuck with books that their kids loved but that they couldn't stand anymore and write a book that really was the kind of book that we wanted to be reading to our kids over and over. And we think that a kid should be able to embrace um, a guy like Alfred looking for his teeth just as much as they should be able to embrace a you know, a blue pony or whatever. I read that you wanted to make a picture book about a non-fancy person giving a grand tour through his non-fancy house as if he were the world's greatest collector and as if his home were the world's greatest museum and you were really interested in the idea of painting a portrait of a person through his possessions. And I was so fascinated by the notion of painting a portrait of a person through his possession, his or her possessions, what does looking at a person through their possessions tell you about that person? Well, you know, when you take the person away, and that's ultimately what's going to happen with all of us, right? We're going to eventually be separated from the things that we own. The things that we own stay behind. And, you know, for anyone who's lost someone close to them when my dad died, eventually when other people who are close to me, when they die, their possessions will stay behind. And the possessions, if you knew the person, then you can fill in that with some very accurate representation of what kind of meaning those possessions have. If you don't know the person or the stuff gets scattered all around at thrift stores and antique stores, you can still sometimes sense a meaningfulness. You might not know – you know, take like a, a stuffed animal that's missing an eye or something like that – you can know that that was a treasured in a way that none of us today, none of us as grown-ups treasure anything in our lives the way that that teddy bear was treasured for a long time. 
And you don't know who it was treasured by. You don't know really anything about it. And it's a little bit similar to what we were talking about before with the art. You don't know the exact story, but you know the intention. You can feel the energy that was and the love that went into that object. And I think that's really what makes antiques and thrift stores and that kind of thing have so much appeal for anyone who's into that is you can feel some energy without really knowing the story. And so for us to tell a story about a guy that was largely through his kind of mixed up belongings felt like a really great opportunity to train our eye on a different way of building a character, which was just through his stuff. Let's talk about your new book, This Bridge Will Not Be Gray. It was written by Dave Eggers of McSweeney's fame and so much more. And you created the marvelously inventive illustrations The book is about the building of the Golden Gate Bridge, which is one of the most famous bridges in the world. It is also the only bridge in the world that is orange. And so the book is a marvelous trek through the story of how the bridge got that way. And it is charming and funny and sometimes a little cheeky. And I loved it. What made you decide to do a book about the bridge? Living in San Francisco, the Golden Gate Bridge is sort of our Mount Fuji, right? It's actually a thing that people orient themselves toward, you know, a little bit like the Chrysler Building, Empire State Building, something like that. It's when you see it, you know where you are, regardless of where you are. You have a sense of I'm in relation to the bridge in this way. And it looks different every time you see it because that space that it's spanning is a very dynamic space where the fog and the sun and the sea and the storms all mix together against the hills. And it's just an incredibly magic little theater show that's going on at all times, at night and during the daytime. So everyone who lives in the Bay Area is lifted up by its presence. And when I heard the story about how the bridge actually came to be orange, it was actually before Dave approached me to do the book, I was trying to tell as many people as would listen to me about it because I just found it so incredible how this actually came to be. It's truly an amazing story. And then he, after Crabtree, he got in touch with me and sent me a first draft of it and said he would be interested in, in doing the book with me about this. And of course, I said yes right away. And I made a decision at that time without a lot of thinking that rather than draw all of the images that I would just cut them out of paper because that would be easier or so I thought. (laughs) (laughs) I had a a vision of I'll just make them and it'll be quick and then I just give them to someone and then I'm done and it's going to look great. I thought that you did the pieces out of cut paper because of the dimensionality and the dimensionality of a bridge, but – there you have it. No, Interpretation. I think that I, – well, I mean that works out really nicely and I think a lot of decisions I make seem to make sense or don't for a bunch of reasons after I've made them. But the initial impulse was really – you know, the story is really about this amazing synchronicity that happens or serendipity I should say. We're in – not to spoil the whole story but basically the pieces of the bridge that were made on the East Coast when they got shipped around through the Panama Canal – they were painted this kind of orange color in order to be rust-proof. And as the bridge started to go up, they hadn't decided yet what color it was going to be. And one of the architects who was really in, just in charge of the kind of designy elements of the bridge, that is to say the elements that have a sort of art deco flair to them, really what makes the bridge sing as an artwork, he started to see these pieces going up and thinking, 
that really looks right, weirdly. The orange looks right. And he started to be involved in this discussion about what color the bridge should be. And, you know, there's a whole backstory about what they were debating. And it was looking like it would just be gray because that's what color bridges are supposed to be. And this sort of assumed, you know, let's not rock the boat here. We're already building this giant bridge. And he was able to garner enough support to ultimately tip the scales and say, you know, it really does look right. Let's go for it. Let's paint this thing orange. It's just an incredible bridge. And now it's even more bold and even more amazing. And I think it's just an amazing, amazing story. And and I hope to uncover more and more stories like this in places that are unexpected where serendipity and just sort of the inherent nature of materials can be celebrated for what they are. And unexpected things can happen even in these massive engineering problems. And how one person's will can change everything. Yeah. Yeah. It takes that recognition. So the decision to make the cut paper was was more in keeping with that of, I don't want to overthink this. I'm going to try to work with the paper that I already have in my studio until I run out of it. And if I cut the paper, I'm already taking a step towards what the story's about by just going as direct as I can, not getting my pen involved, not getting what color should this thing be or not. It's just get out the scissors, get out the paper and get to work. The text is really, really witty. This is one exchange between some of the people talking about the design of the bridge in the book. Everyone was excited about the design. I like it very much, said this man. My aunt likes it very much, said this woman. This third person was chewing food but seemed to agree with the other two people. And I think that's a wonderful example of the cheeky mentality that is threaded through this wonderful book. The orange of the bridge actually has an official name. Do you remember what it is? Yeah, it's called International Orange. (laughs) As opposed to National Orange or Chinese Orange or Brooklyn Orange. You know, and one note about that that's really, truly amazing is that it's actually hardly orange at all. It's really sort of like a dark maroon color. It's not very saturated at all. It's almost a brownish maroon. But the reason why we call it orange and why it reads as orange is because when the light hits it over the water, it just lights up and it becomes this incredibly bright, saturated orange color. And I think for that reason alone, there's no way that anyone could have predicted and made a case for this color before it actually was on the bridge. It just would be inconceivable. No one had ever built a man-made thing across this span that was so dynamic and so alive. And no one would have been able to predict that, let's make it sort of a dullish maroon color. And I just have a feeling that (laughs) the light is going to hit it in this way and it's just going to light up and people are going to go crazy. It's inconceivable that a person could have thought that. So the only way this bridge could have been this color would be by accident. And isn't that perfect? Yeah, it's wonderful. Tucker, thank you so much for writing and designing and creating and making these wonderful books and making the world a more beautiful place with your art. Thanks a lot. This was fun. You can find out more about Tucker Nichols on his website, tuckernichols.com. This year, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store. 